0: Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists.
1: Hello and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. How are you doing today, Rachel?
0: I'm doing well. How are you, Lori?
1: I'm doing good. Also, where are you? Oh, I'm still in Boston. Okay. My background has changed because I picked a different room. But great. I'm still in Boston, heading over to Rome on the 18th. Uh, cool. Rome is letting in vaccinated folk. So I've decided to head over there and hang out for a bit. So that'll be fun. I'm excited.
0: That sounds great.
1: And I know you mentioned, like, maybe you would come visit. And I'm still vying for that in um, every single part yeah, of me. Yeah, there's
0: definitely a part of me that wants to go live in Spain for three months. So <laughs> it's like but I wanna live in I wanna be in like mainland Spain Got and it. You're be in the Canaries, right? And so, yeah, like, so I'll eventually go. I up don't really want to really be on an island.
1: That's okay. Um well, <laughs> if we're in Europe at the same time, I think it would be fabulous. Today we're diving into a topic that I think for Rachel and I has come up in conversations with clients and on social media and we thought it would be a really interesting thing to tackle here is ethical non-monogamy. What it is, why, what are some of the misconceptions about it, why someone would do it, and what does it actually mean for it to be ethical and how that is done. So yeah, I think that's an important topic, I think especially because – I've played with ethical non-monogamy and um, I think it's just an important thing for us to talk about is what it looks like from the perspective of people who've done it before and not just people who are looking at it like this mysterious other thing.
0: Yep. I also want to mention like we're also going to talk a little bit about how it can be sort of a spiritual practice and how yes. to have it be a spiritual practice and because um, I know when I was when I was not monogamous that was definitely how I approached it was seeing it as – part of a spiritual practice and, and personal growth oriented
1: yeah I think that's important and I think one of the things that I've mentioned as we were prepping for this is how we just had our right now live is our episode on singleness and I feel like how it's interestingly a very similar practice being ethically non-monogamous and being single in an interesting way that I think we'll get into well I'll talk more about what I feel like that is <laughs> so Yeah, so I was thinking about misconceptions, and one of the things that came up I think a lot is jealousy and how jealousy is something that a lot of people say, I could never be non-monogamous because I would be too jealous, when I think non-monogamous people can be jealous as well. Rachel, what is your experience with jealousy?
0: So I know that when I first started to be non-monogamous, I definitely felt like, Well, I'm going to be jealous of other people because we're just socialized to think that, like, you have to have one other person. And if this person is interested or looking at other people even, right, especially from Christian communities, it's like the concept of, like, street lust. Or, like, the idea that if you're even willing to look at another person and notice how attractive they are, if you're clearly not really committed to this person. You don't really like them enough or whatever. So, first, starting to, like, just take yourself out of that mindset... Is a big step. And then from there, realizing that when jealousy does occur, what is it really about for you? So before we were recording, you were talking about how you were like, Yeah, there's just this part of me that's like, anyone who's more attractive than me, according to my head of how I define that, is like not someone I want my partner to be with because there's a jealousy factor there. And for me, when I was non monogamous, yeah, there's some attractiveness there, but it was also like just. Are, is this person, do they seem more experienced than I do? Do they seem more like mature or put together or whatever? Because I was in like my early and mid20s. So feeling like what what am I offering this person that's different from what their other partners is offering are offering was actually a really important thing for me to ask to hear. Um, which sounds like a weird ask, but to tell somebody who's your partner, like, well, what am I really offering you that your other partners aren't offering you right now? And over time, I learned that really what I was offering was my individual Rachelness that is unique and interesting just by being me. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, well, you're the one that's brunette, or you're the one who has this body type, or you're the one who's interested in this. It was really no, you're just you as a person and I enjoy being with you. Thinking of it more the same way that we think about having lots of friends rather than focusing as much on the sexual component.
1: Yeah, it makes me think I have, I've actually had a conversation like that as well when I found out a guy I had been with for a while was hooking up with another woman. And I knew that was a possibility. He knew I was hooking up with other people as well. And it's just, there was this moment where I realized that he had been hooking up with another woman as consistently as he'd been hooking up with me. And I say hooking up just because we weren't officially dating. So it was like, he was a guy who I was hanging out with a lot. And I was a woman he was hanging out with a lot. And there was this other woman he was hanging out with a lot. And I was nervous. Because to me, I felt like our relationship was really special. And so my concern was, wait, am I actually not that special? Is she the one that's special? And it felt weird to verbalize out loud that I'm afraid I'm not special. And the response was very much, no, you're your you ness Your you-ness is special and that's that's just what it is. We're just two completely different people. And I liken that a lot to best friends. If I have a really, really good friend, it's not that My other really good friend from graduate school, or my other really good friend from Boston, is also not my really good friend. It's just a different relationship with different values and different beauty to it, and it's okay.
0: There's a question there in my mind of like, why do we feel this need to be special in a un in a like a only one person gets to be claimed as special kind of way. Almost in the same way where in elementary school, I can remember being like, well, this is my best friend and I don't have any other best friends. There's just the one. And why is it that that is something that we value? And maybe that goes into a conversation around like traditional dating and that kind of thing. And maybe we'll get into that later. But that's the question that comes up next in my mind is why do we feel this need to be special in a way that's only us?
1: Well, it makes me think of the jealousy issue that you brought up with like prettiness. If I can find myself, if like a woman who likes my boyfriend's posts, if I've just decided that she's prettier than me for all the reasons, society, patriarchy, nothing, like beauty I firmly believe is inerrant in all human beings and that's a beautiful trait of all humans. But I it's like, oh, her boobs are bigger than mine or her eyes are prettier or her hair is more luscious or whatever is coming to mind. I get jealous and then I immediately think he, he's sleeping with her and I get, she, she's better in bed than me. She's, she's amazing. She's perfect in every way. Whereas in reality, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Maybe, but it just, it, teaches me instead about what my values are and really calls to the front my belief when I say, oh, everyone's beautiful, but yet there's that part of me that obviously clearly doesn't really think that. There's a part of me that has this inner jealousy or this inner pride, its ego, these things that are mixing up inside of me that, that jealousy brings forward. And I think in a monogamous relationship, I was still doing that, only it also made me possessive. Because I would think, I don't want him talking to her because she's I think she's prettier than me. And I would have the right to say that in a monogamous relationship. Whereas in a non-monogamous relationship, especially if your parameters are set up in a certain way, it creates a way that says, no, I have to let him be who he is. I have to let my partner be who they are and be with who they choose to be and not put restrictions on, on them.
0: That's interesting because I feel that example that you gave is not how I have related to either non-monogamy or monogamy. So when it comes to, you know, if my husband has a friend who I think is really attractive, like there's not, that's my, that's still my stuff to deal with. It's not my responsibility to ask him to stop doing something because it's making me feel uncomfortable. It's my responsibility to figure out like, why is this making me feel uncomfortable And if that requires that I have a conversation with him about, like, well, what's, there's, you know, sometimes we can get, like, a spidey sense that, like, there's something else going on in that that, that's outside of the confines of what our boundaries have been determined to be. And then you have a conversation about it. And in non-monogamous situations, I also think that, like, there's a way that it can be the more responsible thing to communicate, hey, this person that you're hanging out with is bringing up some jealous feelings in me or I'm feeling kind of uncomfortable about it can you process those with me can we have a conversation about that and not necessarily to ask them to not see that person any- anymore but I don't think that's something we can necessarily ask anyone to do ever um with some parameters there that might fit into there but um Yeah, when it comes to a non-monogamous situation to still be able to say, hey, this person's making me feel jealous. And it also depends on the the confines of the relationship and how it's non-monogamous. So if you have a primary partner and they're starting to date somebody that's making you feel uncomfortable, to be able to say, for right now, I need to have a smaller box because this larger box is making me feel unsafe in the relationship. And so if we're going to prioritize our partnership as primary partners, then part of that prioritization means sometimes not doing everything that we wish we wanted, we could do or want to do because we're we're moving at the pace of the slowest partner, basically.
1: I agree with you. I don't. I don't necessarily. I don't see us disagreeing. I what I see also is for me there's a big difference. First of all, with someone liking an Instagram post versus someone that they're hanging out with. I think that would also be a a huge difference as well. But I also think that what monogamy, I agree in a healthy monogamous relationship, you would be able to say to that person, hey, I'm jealous about this. Let's talk about it. But I don't think, and we'll probably talk more about this when we talk about traditional dating, but I don't think in our traditional dating dialogue we create space for those conversations, or they're assumed. Whereas in what I find in ethical non-monogamy, it comes to the forefront almost immediately because we have to deal with those feelings immediately. I don't think I would have ever seen me with my ex if I saw a woman like his post that I was jealous of in some way. I would have assumed that jealousy was legitimate, okay, and fine. Whereas in a non-monogamous relationship, I realize that that jealousy is rooted in something that I need to analyze. Does that make sense? And so it becomes... It becomes, this is maybe getting more into the spiritual practice, but it becomes something that brings forward the needs of a person in a way that jealousy ends up, for me in a dating relationship, becoming a tool towards getting to know my higher self instead of becoming something where it's like, well, I'm just too jealous. I can't do this. It's actually something that I get to look into and analyze a little bit more deeply. That also brings me to the concept of why. Why would, I guess the question that I have here, I just wrote ethical and then I wrote ethics as another line. So I'm not sure what so I, was, how I was distinguishing about, those. Um,
0: <laughs> why do we call it ethical non-monogamy as opposed to just non-monogamy? And is it always ethical to be monogamous? Oh, yeah. And?
1: Yes. Because then I also noted cheating underneath that. And I think we also wanted to talk about cheating as well.
0: Cheating is really easy. Can we start with that one? Yeah. So non-monogamous couples who are doing this well generally have some framework, right? There's some container that has been agreed upon and that can take multiple, can take a while to negotiate and it can also be flexible. So a lot of times the couples that I've coached and also within my own relationships, it's like, here's the box that I think will work for me, that I think will work for us. But then as you live into that, there's oftentimes things that come up where you're like, actually, I can't do that one. That that feels too far for me, so let's reel it back in. So maybe you have a rule where it's like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Just use protection, right? Just make sure you're using condoms. And then somebody has your partner has sex with somebody else, and you're like, actually, that was too far. Now I I feel a lot more feelings than I am ready to handle, and so now I have to pull that thing off the table. Let's renegotiate. And you can do that throughout an entire partnership. So going back to that, that example of um you know we're we can do whatever we want to do we just have to use protection if you are in that partnership and you go out and have sex with somebody without using a condom that's cheating and in those cases it's it's really it's in some ways I almost feel like it's worse than if you're cheating in in a non-monogamous situation because with with, non-monogamous rather in monogamous situations you like got to coffee with someone and hold hands and it could potentially be cheating. And it's like, what is holding hands really going to do or, or kissing somebody really going to do in the long term? Um, except for when you're living in a pandemic, in which case you can get COVID and pass it on to your partner, but you know, under normal times and, but having sex with somebody, there's like all this other stuff that like you can get somebody pregnant. You can, you know, there's a variety of diseases that are passed sexually that are like, have so much stigma attached to them that we shouldn't have stigma attached to them, but we do. Um, and passing that on to a partner on, without their knowledge—that that's a risk that they're willing, that they're walking into. All of those things, I think, are where those beyond just like the breach of trust. It's it's like all of that risk that you're you're pushing onto your partner without their consent, and it feels really gross. Um, but that's how cheating works. <laughs> do you have any more to add?
1: Yeah. Well, my partner and I have a list of a living document that we sort of created together and then we build on and we add to and take away when and if it feels appropriate through conversations. It's not like I'm going to go in and I'm going to be like editing this, editing this, editing this (laughs) without talking to him. No, we sit down and we have conversations about it. And I think part of that, the beauty of that is that it also allows us to understand what what each other's needs are. And what, and what we need going back to that first question of like, well, who, what am I providing for you? I also, in that conversation, like was being very clear about what distinguishes me as his girlfriend from another woman he's dating. And for me, also what distinguishes him from another guy that I'm dating, because it's also different. Um, what we're getting from our other partners is different than what we'd be getting from, from one another. And you know what is the point of having a boyfriend if i'm also hooking up with other people well there's specific reasons that align for me about what i'd be getting from that versus versus for him and probably a lot for a lot of other open relationships and what they're what they're getting for them and i think the the th- thought i have is there's a lot of really good resources on the internet for things to ha- conversations to have during those times, what things you want to make sure you consider, what do you want to make sure you hit on that? And being open to to changing and shifting things and communicating things, because that's where I think the cheating is. and for me, the biggest thing is cheating is lying. I feel so much more okay with having a conversation before something happens. But if something happens, like for whatever reason, you've brought up condoms. The only thing I can think of that, you know, we of course have sex always with condoms. But if my partner wanted to have sex with someone without a condom, him coming to me and saying, this is a woman I'm with. This is why I want to do it. This is what's going on. Knowing that that's going on in his head is more important to me than the condom itself, even though safe sex is really, really, really important. One hundred. Does that make sense?
0: And I think that's such a it's an interesting nuance to the situation because I think there are some people who would say, Oh, it's the action that I really care about. And there are other people who like you would be like, it's, it's more the internal what's happening in the reality of, of the other person's mind and how they're relating to that. That that's really what's more important to me. And I don't know that there's one that's better or worse than the other, but I think there's like a, a range there. Um, And of course, any action has all of these other emotional things that we bring to it. You know, all of our assumptions that what does it mean to want to have sex without a condom? Or what does it mean to want to make out with somebody else? Or what does it mean to do whatever? Um, Yeah.
1: And I think that brings forward that every single relationship, whether monogamous or non-monogamous, is different. And the needs of every person is different. And so what I have on my relationship agreement, which makes me feel like Sheldon Cooper, but what I have on my relationship agreement is going to be different from what somebody else has on their relationship agreement. And it's going to continue to evolve and change. And I think the interesting thing is, is not that this is important to have for non-monogamous couples, but it's something I wish I had when I was monogamous too. Because then it really required me to look at my needs and for him to look at his needs and know so I'm clear on what he needs and what he what he doesn't need in a way that I don't think I was taught about doing in non in monogamy, and I don't I think we're just starting to talk about that totally. in our society. Part in general. of what's coming
0: up for me also is something that a lot of couples feel uncomfortable with, but it's totally fine. Is because I've been in relationships where my boundaries are different from the other person's boundaries. So, for example. One relationship I was in was like, my partner could do whatever the heck he wanted with the exception of contents has always been like my, my, my line. Um, and if he, but he wanted, I wanted him to tell me about what he did after the fact. So like, doesn't matter what you do, just tell me after the fact what's happening. Not like lots of details, but just like, you know, I went on this date and we had sex. Great. Awesome. Good to know. Um, whereas... On my end, he was more new to non-monogamy, and therefore I had to ask him or talk to him about what I wanted beforehand. Um, And that's okay as long as both partners feel okay with it. If I didn't feel okay with that, if that felt like it was too restrictive to me, then that's not going to work. But since we both felt okay with with what the agreement was, then that's fine. And you don't have to have things be totally perfectly like the same on both sides in order for an ethically ethically non monogamous relationship to work. Language is hard for me this morning.
1: It's fine. That's so interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking my partner and I have two nights a week right now where it's like I know that he could go on a date and he knows I could go on a date. And then otherwise, so then that way for me, it makes it really good for if a friend's like, hey, let's go on a double date. I can say, oh, I know it can't be on this night or this night. It has to be on another night because those are the nights that he gets to himself. And I like knowing that if he goes out that night, I don't know if he's going on a date or if he's going to meet up with a friend or if he's going to, you know, it just doesn't matter. And I don't know and I don't need to know and I don't want to know because I want to be able to let him do his thing and I also want my dating life to be my thing. And then to communicate what needs to be communicated when it's communicated. And I say that just because I think that this is part of, goes back to that, like, everyone is different. And when we know what we need and what we want, then that's okay. Some non-monogamous couples need to communicate and want to communicate and find peace in communicating details. Whereas other people are like, no, great. Have, Have a great, great, great sex life. I hope you have fun. And leaving it to those, those, that openness to be okay with what you need is important. Because I think the other thing I want to emphasize, since I know a lot of our listeners are coming from conservative environments, is there is no right way. Just like there was never, like, the rules around sex that we were up with. <laughs> like, there is no line that you need to, like, make sure you stay inside of. You get to create the lines and then erase them when they need to be readjusted.
0: Yeah, it's not one size fits all. And we know that even with monogamous relationships, there's no one size fits all. But it's harder for us to see that because we're just used to it. And we sort of make assumptions about monogamous relationships.
1: Which brings me to my question about traditional dating like why would somebody be non-monogamous? Why can't why can't someone just be monogamous? Why do they have to be non-monogamous or like why do they why must they choose that? What is the feeling? I don't know.
0: What I do know is that like in our era most of us are non-monogamous over the course of our lifetime. And so the question is do you want to be a serial monogamist, which is one form of non-monogamy, or do you want to be non-monogamous? simultaneously um and that's generally how you know that's how our society works right now we don't have a lot of people in western culture like the most of the people who are probably our listeners um most of us aren't like the only person you ever date is the person that you that your parents chose for you that you're going to get married to whatever that's not most of us um so it's sort of what kind of non-monogamist do you want to be would be one way to frame it, which might sound edgy and challenging for some people, but.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. I think for me, I decided to, I don't know if I'll ever be monogamous ever again. And one of the reasons for me is I feel that, The concept of monogamy for me, I'm not saying this is true for every monogamous person, but for me feels too in line with this feeling of owning someone and having control over their sex life and then vice versa them have control over mine. And I don't want to be in a relationship like that. I'm not saying that monogamous relationships can't be freeing and open in in terms of like you don't own the person. I do understand that that's not true for all monogamous relationships. But for me, as I was, I looked into like the point of monogamy, historically, how we've had monogamy and all these things, I was just like, I feel like it just comes out of patriarchy. And that doesn't mean you're patriarchal or a bad feminist if you're monogamous. It means that for me, it became a feeling of to put myself with one person felt like I was doing something that didn't feel aligned with my values anymore. Um,
0: I like that. Just to offer a different perspective for our listeners who are monogamous and want to feel more okay with that, um, I think there's a way that it also simplifies life. Like being non-monogamous is – dating is hard. It's hard to find people to date. It's hard to find people that you like. It's hard to find people that like are – are, are people that you are interested in and so there's also a way that if your focus is on other things in your life at a certain time it can also be just really helpful to be like i'm just with this one person and this is where i'm getting my my partnered sex needs from right now um and this is where i'm getting those other partnership needs from and i'm going to just stick with this one person from a simplicity and convenience standpoint and out of love and affection and all of those other things, um, without it feeling like I need only this one person because I, if I, if they're with other people or if I'm with other people, we're like, we're starting something chaotic or doing something wrong. Um, but I think there's a way that it can also just be, this is not a part of my life that I want to prioritize right now in that way. And so I'm going to just simplify it with having just one partner.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really funny because I feel like when I start these conversations about non-monogamy, it feels like I need to defend non-monogamy. And then I always end that being like, monogamy is fine. No, monogamy isn't immoral. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Then flipping and making the case for why monogamy is moral. And I think that that also comes from this feeling of having to be right, that need to fit into those lines That I'm even feeling where I'm like, I'm not judging you for being monogamous, like, because there feels like there's a there's a right side and a wrong side. And these two sides are not really in competition with each other. I haven't gone on a date in a couple months. A long, actually longer than that. It's been a while. COVID, COVID's a factor. I haven't been in a place consistently I've learned a lot about the way men view women in non monogamy that's made them not someone I want to. <laughs> date. Like if only you all had seen
0: my facial expression as she said that. I'm one of like such deep knowing of being like, yeah, that is a big reason why monogamy is more it's attractive like It's right like You would
1: think that a I don't woman have to deal with
0: men that are you would like, Oh my gosh, that's so exciting that you're non monogamous. Now I get to like just use you for sex and it's like, No, that was never what I was interested in.
1: Oh, I mean I just often find that it's like I am a woman who is telling you I am looking for fun, casual, hangout time. Like I'm not looking for a boyfriend. I want to have a good conversation, a glass of wine, and really fun evening with you. And they're like, let me show you all the reasons why I'm the worst option for that before we begin. And then I'm like, actually, no, I don't want to sleep with you now. And they're like, what? Why? Me being disrespectful, rude, objectifying, and egotistical wasn't wasn't attractive,
0: or having really weird. Other I feel like I could do an entire podcast. That's been my thing. Where the, there's been oh, so I've many people not run into over that. Years where it's like somebody is, you know, they are married or they are partnered, but they have like a really bad sex life with their with their primary partner, and so they're getting their sexual needs met outside of the relationship with the permission of their partner, but in a way that doesn't feel like it's actually fully freely permitted. It's more like coerced consent. And that's also very strange. And it mm. is weird. It's weird.
1: Well, that's actually something we haven't talked about, which we probably could have talked about in misconception, but I do wanna highlight as I've seen in Facebook groups and online forums that I'm in about non-monogamy people talking about how they don't want to be monogamous they don't want to be non-monogamous but their partner wants to be non-monogamous and they feel forced into it or feeling like like guys who whose girlfriends are bisexual they only want her to hook up with other women and he gets to hook up with other women but she doesn't want her to hook up with other men and all different sorts of things that can make Non-monogamy, just as unethical as sometimes monogamy can be unethical, where it's this idea that we're still creating control around sex and sexuality instead of freedom and choice and happiness. Because if you're forcing your partner to be non-monogamous, that's not ethical.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where it can also take, like, what's the creative solution here? And what's the need behind the other partner wanting non-monogamy? So one of the things that comes up a lot that I've noticed amongst people who are raised in more conservative Christian environments, whether they were evangelical or Catholic or whatever, is a lot of times people feel like they've been cheated out of this section of life where sexual exploration happens. And so at a certain point as they're in their deconstruction, reconstruction process, they're like, whoa, 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 but I missed out on all of this really cool stuff I could have done. And now I'm married and I have kids and I'm doing all the the normal suburban stuff. How do I... Can I get a taste of what that would have been like? And that's where there's a question there for me around what is the other partner available for? Could we do something where, you know, can you have just like a really fun weekend somewhere? And is that going to be enough to get that taste? Could you be creative and say, I'm going to learn how to tango dance or learn how to like blues dance or do bachata or something that's like a more sexual, sensual dance form where you can get some of that desire for sexual connection from other people there without necessarily having to break someone's boundaries? Or can we have a shorter period of time? Can we say for the next three months, we're going to be more open so that this partner can explore a little bit more? within a certain parameters within, you know, can they make out with people, but they can't have sex or do we say like they have to on vacation, we can do this for a year or whatever. So that there's some amount of exploration available without necessarily feeling like it's going to be detrimental to the relationship. And if all of those things still don't feel good, then okay, let's see if we can figure out something else. Maybe even within our monogamous relationship, doing more role-playing or, Acting like we don't know each other at a restaurant and then, you know, and dressing differently than we usually do and being really creative about how do we explore and experience more aspects of ourselves that were denied because of our beliefs earlier on in life.
1: Yeah, I think that that's really important. And I think that that goes back to what we're going to talk about in a little bit is communication and how how to start the communication process in a relationship it leads me to also want to talk about the spirituality behind non-monogamy. And I've talked a little bit about how, for me, it's gotten me to really look at my ego in a lot of ways and be able to do my own work around who who is me and who is the higher self that I'm hoping to be and realizing the distinction between the two and working towards the more loving, equitable, open, free person that I hope to be. And that's been healthy for me and my own spiritual life. But for you, Rachel, you even said you have a strong theology around non-monogamy, and I'm really excited I do. to hear it. And
0: some people are probably going to hear it and be like, oh, gosh, you're more heretical than I thought you were. But
1: it is what it is. <laughs> it's it Honestly, it's probably so... tra- very traditional. I feel like at the end of the day, all sexual theology ends up being like, oh, it's from this like monk in the 1200s so my
0: basic definition of love and of god because they are the same thing is that god is the infinite pool of love that i think one of the privileged places where we can tap into that is in our relationships with other people and one of the privileged places within relationship that we can tap into that infinite pool of love is when we are experiencing like sexual ex- exploration with another person so you know, it's like the privileged space within the privileged space. Yes, we can experience God's love when we look at nature. Yes, we can experience God's love when we're praying. Yes, we can experience God's love when we are doing any number of things, sipping my coffee, whatever. But relationship feels like it's a really unique, beautiful space. And so when I started to see and experience like, can I, can I tap into that infinite pool of love with the intentionality of saying, all of us are part of the mystical body of Christ every single person, every single thing in the world, but every single person in specific. And can I practice seeing the divine in every individual, especially within this particularly sacred act? And so that's how it was really a spiritual practice for me. So I would like go into a sexual space with that being my very clear intention. And part of it's like practicing Tantra, but... um, yeah, that's sort of how I see it. And and to the extent that it's a challenge to see that other person as an aspect of God, like, what's the stickiness there? And that's my block from being able to experience God's love as fully as possible. Because ultimately, every person is equally part of the mystical body of Christ. And so if I'm able to see every person as part of the mystical body of Christ, that's really what we're called to do, period. Um,
1: Yes. It's so fascinating. I think about, for me, it comes a lot from Song of Songs as well as the idea that the church is the bride of Christ and that God is non-monogamous in, in God's relationships, that, that there is an intimate marriage between God and us as individuals and intimate marriage between God and you, you and God have an intimate relationship, God and I have an intimate relationship, and that doesn't mean God loves you more or me more or all these listeners here that God is this infinite ability. And if we are Imago de, and we are loving like God loves, then we should have this ability to let our love expand towards as many people as possible. And now as I'm saying this, I'm also thinking about an interesting conversation I had with a monogamous person who was sharing me their theology of polyamory, which is really an interesting experience for them to be explaining to me why my sex life was moral and like I got their thumbs up which was great but um, they were talking about it in a form of polyamory and so I also want to say that sometimes what happens in non-monogamous relationships is that polyamorous relationships get elevated as if these are the real committed ones and that the casual relationships don't really count or don't really matter which I think is still a product of a lot of Problems we have around like images of the nuclear family and things like that. So, that casual, like my one night stand that I had with some guy who we had a beautiful connection and for whatever reason we're not seeing each other anymore is just as valuable to me as a long term committed relationship. They're different and they're, but I wouldn't put like a value mark on them. And I think that sometimes when we talk about God, the Bride of Christ in relationship to non-monogamy, we elevate polyamory in a way that is not necessarily needs to be elevated. But I also do think that God is non-monogamous. That was which
0: point. is why I love the image of Krishna and Radha so much, where Krishna, um, in traditional like iconography, Krishna ends up being having all of the Gopis, which are like the sheep herder women. He's in love. And playing his flute for all of them simultaneously. And none of them are aware of it because God is so capable of being so infinitely in love with all of us simultaneously. And it's like one of my favorite, favorite images of God. For that very reason of clearly Krishna is non-monogamous with Radha, but also all of the other gopis. Um, yeah, what was I going to say about something else? Go ahead and I'll get back to it later.
1: Well it makes me think of how Song of Songs isn't there isn't there the lyre being played and God is playing music for for the lover. And I do know historically Song of Songs is like pretty much argued to be written by Solomon for his lover, but historically and traditionally it has been used as a love song between God and and humanity. So I'm making those theological distinctions. But I think that it doesn't God play for play for God's lovers? Cool.
0: I'm not sure. We can talk about probably sort of in a whole episode by itself because I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, And it's also, yeah, I'm somebody who does not like the fact that we oftentimes will, I think it waters it down when we use it as an allegory for God's love for humanity, because I think that it makes it so that we're not acknowledging that ultimately it is about an illicit love affair between two people. And we need to just like, I love sit oh wait, there's so effort. many things
1: I have because I one of the things I love about talking to Rachel about sex and sexuality and like erotic theology is I think when somebody is raised Catholic and somebody is raised evangelical, I feel like Catholics are taught that sex is like the ultimate thing you can do is be mon- is be celibate for the rest of your life. And evangelicals are taught the ultimate thing you for women especially, like your body belongs to your future husband. And so for me, the idea that my body like that I didn't have to ever have sex and that I could be holy and never get married. <laughs> felt so liberating for me, whereas women who grew up Catholic, like that's not liberating for them at all. So I feel like this is gonna be a great episode. I'm excited for it. Get excited when you see Song of Solomons, yes. you're gonna it's gonna be a good one <laughs> mm. we d- I, we talked a little bit about this, but it was interesting when I posted on a forum about ethical non-monogamy. Somebody pointed out that it's wrong to call something ethical because call it call non-monogamy ethical because it's assuming that it can be unethical more than monogamy can be unethical so the assumption is that nobody says i'm ethically monogamous so why do we need to say i'm ethically non-monogamous that that stems from a a a pejorative understanding of it and i think rachel if you can't see rachel now but she's like moving her head around, like, okay, I, I can see that. And that's exactly my reaction as well. And so why don't you share your response to that, and then I'll share my response as well.
0: Oh, man. I mean, yeah, okay, I see it. I hear it. I think that's probably going to be the response that will make a lot of sense in, like, right. I don't know, 15, 20 years. I think we're not quite there yet. Based upon the experiences that I've had, that you said that you've had with – um. Lori and I, at least, are, are mostly um, heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So with the men that we've tried to date, I imagine this would be less of a problem if I were trying to date women. But um, a whole- that's also yeah. patriarchy and my own biases. Bias. Um, but basically, like, there's so many m- people that don't know how to do ethical non-monogamy that you do have to clarify. Because especially in, our, especially in the U.S., and people in our generation, Um, you know, one of my first experiences of non-monogamy was like Bill Clinton. And that was not ethical (laughs) on a variety of levels. So like, that's going to be the first thought in my mind around what it means to be non-monogamous. And so we have to sort of clarify, Mm -hmm. at least for this era, or at a le- little bit of time, what that really means. But I will say that I've been in communities where, like, it's not necessary to, con- to clarify that, that it is ethical, because the assumption is that it's ethical. So it also depends on, like, where you are and who you're talking to and all of those things. I think I, I agree with you pensando? for
1: the most part. I think that when people hear non-monogamy, they assume – well, they assume a couple things. One, they assume your relationship is on the rocks, because they assume there's major things you're not getting. From your partner and that a healthy relationship is always monogamous. And so that's the first thing that can be really confusing. The second thing that can be really confusing for people is not seeing non-monogamy as ethical. Like, it, it, they don't understand it in those realms. So I've had guys like double check that my boyfriend knows that I am on dating apps. I've had guys be really confused. Uh, and so me clarifying that, yes, I live with my boyfriend, and yes, we're non-monogamous has been, it's been something I've consistently had to explain and clarify to people. And I think that that's okay. For me, it's okay because I don't want to, of course, I don't want to engage in a relationship with someone who's wondering if I'm lying or or isn't clear on the situation. But also because I think it's—it's it's not it's a new concept, so we still need to explore it. I do think one of the things that ethical non-monogamy puts in front of monogamous couples is that they have to also analyze, wait, is my relationship ethical? Is my relationship rooted in transparency? Is my relationship exactly what I need and what I want for myself? And in those conversations, I think that that breaks open the conversation about ethical monogamy versus non-ethical monogamy, uh, which I think is interesting. So I'm kind of okay with saying, are you in an ethically monogamous relationship or are you in an unethical monogamous relationship? And I'm okay with that.
0: And I think that's like so much of what we talk about here is how patriarchal structures, whether they be religious structures or just secular structures, create unethical mm-hmm. relating and unethical sexual expectations and... um Especially if we use pleasure as our ethic, which I think we we ultimately ought to. Pleasure in the the broadest construed way. We're not just pleasure in the moment, but pleasure...
1: The erotic, the divine, the...
0: Experientially. So like, yeah, outside of the actual experience of whatever you're doing, is it still pleasurable three days later? Is it still pleasurable to look back on it years later? Which I think, thinking back on some of my experiences... Many years later, I'm like, yeah, that was an awesome, pleasurable ethic was being met in that situation, even if it was a one-night stand, even if it was a short- term relationship.
1: Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I think ethics but, it, it brings up an interesting point and it brings up an interesting conversation that is important, I think, for all of society to question, not just people within within this umbrella of people. Because I think that communication, which is our next point we're bringing out, is like communication, what is communication and how does that make those relationships more ethical? Or Like how do you make non-monogamy ethical, I think is necessary so deeply for all relationships. And I think no matter what, how your relationship is, you have negotiated certain parameters for your relationship, whether you've done them consciously or unconsciously. So how... How have you negotiated those and have you done them consciously and are they serving you? I can think of my last relationship when we were both in school, we had agreed that we would stop working at seven, but we never stopped working at seven. We always continued to do study or work on stuff until like eight, nine o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And that was because we were unconsciously, the thing we verbally had as our contract wasn't actually our contract. Our contract was what we were actually doing. And I think that that can happen in both types of relationships, um, and that's—I mean—it's not the worst unethical thing to do, but it—that's the example that comes to mind is not being honest with each other.
0: So communication, um, and it sounds like we have different experiences of what style and how much communication feels really, really good to us. So I want to just like note that as like there's a variety of ways to do this. I know for myself, one of my first non-monogamous relationships was between two men that were also roommates, which was both amazing and fun and also challenging for that specific reason of how much communication is possible here and, like, what kind of communication is necessary. And if I'm coming out of somebody's bedroom and the other guy is going to make us all breakfast, is that really okay with all of us? And can we all communicate the feelings that are coming up with all of this stuff. And can we acknowledge the jealousy in the moment and talk about it right then was sort of our collective communication style around this situation. Um, and that's generally been my personal communication ethic is like, if we can bring this stuff up as soon as it comes to the surface, and at least acknowledge it, even if it, even if the conversation we want to have about it that's more in-depth has to be tabled to a later date, the quicker we can acknowledge what comes up that's a negative experience, the more that we can like nip it in the bud rather than letting it fester and then having it get really messy. And that's sort of where that is. So I'm like an over-processor, talk all the time, figure out all the stuff. I could be a really good lesbian in like a stereotypical way that lesbian relationships get talked about, um, where there's over processing. Um, So that's kind of the that's where I land in the on the communication spectrum. So
1: I am my first committed non-monogamous relationship. Whereas all my other times when I was when I was married, I was in a Christian traditional monogamous and all the post- purity culture ways that we can all imagine it was. So I would say unethically monogamous. And so when I was single, I kind of had my wild dating life that I'd missed out on in my 20s. And it was definitely not monogamous then. And then was comfortable in my non-monogamy for a while. But when you're single and non-monogamous, that's a little bit more of a easy road to tread in a way where you're just I was just always very clear from the beginning that I'm not looking for a relationship I'm in the middle of a divorce I'm having fun and dating and I'm getting the experiences that I missed out on in my 20s and most guys understood some guys had more questions other guys didn't but it was relatively clear that there's no relationship possibility here and I am going to be dating other people while we're hanging out and had our negotiations and understandings with one another. But then I tried to be monogamous while single, where I was like, I'm only dating one man at a time. It didn't go well. And it didn't work for me. So I switched out. So for me, the communication was often just being really honest as a single woman that I'm not going to be only seeing you and I hope that's okay with you. Whereas... Now that I'm in a relationship, I think, so this is only one experience, but he's a Virgo. I'm a Libra. We're both very logical people. We like to talk about things for a very long time and be really clear in communicating about our feelings. So we have a weekly meeting where we go through our relationship and where we are, what we need from each other, what's working, what's not working. And we check in with each other. And that, I think, is just very has a beautiful explanation for how we deal with all conflicts in our relationship is we might talk about them in the moment and a lot of times we're pretty good at that but sometimes we just save it for the weekend and that I think informs the way we negotiated our non-monogamy in a very organized fashion where we have a document (laughs) with our like pinpoints that we can go to and uh, we even have like relatively clearly outlined like what our needs are from each other as well. And so my emotions, I feel like go in a container that I'm like, oh, that's sadness or oh, that's jealousy. Do I need to talk to him about that? Yes, okay, so I'm gonna put it in a container for when it's time to talk to him about it. Or I'm gonna go do shadow work or I'm going to go process it the way I need to. Um. It sounds to me like when you were describing your relationship with your roommates, you would probably have those conversations like in the moment when they were coming up. Whereas I would probably never do that. I would probably do shadow work, journal about it, then be like, all right, so I noticed a bit of jealousy this week when I was da 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 and like (laughs) process it in this way. But that works for me. If I was in a relationship with someone, though, who did bring it up in the moment, I might also be like, we need to negotiate this and have a daily meeting where we process our emotions together. <laughs> but that's my personality.
0: It's definitely like a different way of existing in the world. And I find it to be like something I get off on, but it's definitely not something. It's actually a conflict that my husband and I have all the time. Cause I'm like, no, no, no but like, I'm feeling the thing right now and I'm not gonna be feeling it in an hour or two. And so it, it's not going to be important to me anymore, but it is important in this moment. And so, like, can we talk about it now so that it doesn't happen again? But that's also me and just how I experience my emotional internal reality. I do that too.
1: Um, I will say, like, there are times where I'm like, I don't like that you relate. <laughs> it bothers me. But I think if it's, like, a big thing that needs to have a big conversation, I typically hold off on it.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to say um, that's kind of a tangent is that when I was non-monogamous, I was in multiple long-term relationships simultaneously. So rather than having, like, a primary partner that, like, what Lori is describing where, like, you basically have a primary partner and then, like, you guys both date and find other partners and, and that kind of thing. I was in, like, multiple long-term relationships. And by long-term, I mean, like, over a year long, which felt really good to me um and really fun. But I wasn't necessarily anyone's primary partner and none of those people were necessarily my primary partner. There were certainly times when it was like this person is more we're hanging out with each other more than we are with anyone else. But it was never a defined primary partnership. And that's something too that while I was in that doing that with my life, there was a lot of ethical questions in my mind about is it even fair to have a primary partner and then have people underneath, which goes to the question that we were going to talk about with like unicorns. And to what extent is it ethical to say I have a primary partner, but then I have secondary partners. Like, should we really be ranking people like that? Or is that just a convention of weird ownership structures? Or is it a convention of clarity and delineation so that you know, who's coming to the family Chris? miss party or who's going to be your date to a wedding or whatnot. And I think there's no right answer to this. It's just a matter of like what's going to work for all the people involved. But I'm curious to hear, Laurie's.
1: Yeah, I hate the word primary. Ideas. It bothers me only because I think it does create an elevation. So my partner, so I so I just use the word term partner for my boyfriend. He's my partner, meaning – He's the one who will sign my UPS packages for me. If my car breaks down, he's going to he's gonna be the person I'm going to call. He's going to go with me to the emergency room. He is my life partner. He's like the life person that life is fused together with in, in all the ways that it can be when you're with someone for one year because we've been together for a year. But that is, and I do acknowledge that people have been together for 10 years or 20 years, their life is fused together even more than ours is. But he's the person who I also run through like there's parts of my life that I keep very intimate that I don't share with everyone and so for example my business I share my business only with like I talked to Rachel about business choices because she's another entrepreneur that I, I trust <laughs> that I like I respect her feedback um my business coach I trust with feedback and him but I don't typically talk about my business on dates with guys because Also, men love to think that they're really good at being entrepreneurs, even if they've never started a business before, and give you advice. Um, Of course, they're so so good. Better
0: at everything than women are. I had a guy offer to revamp
1: my website, and then I saw, like, he doesn't have a website and he's never built a website before, and like my boyfriend builds websites, and I was like, I think I'm set with like having my website built. um, it just They're really great at business, and girls' brains are just too small to comprehend it. So that was always useful. So I always keep... <laughs> so I keep, like, there's certain parts of my life that I just don't share on on until a relationship is more intimate with a lot of people. I know it might seem funny because I'm on a podcast called Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and I'll talk to you about sex positions, but, like, not, like, my business budget. Like, that's too intimate for me so for me I feel like my partner is someone who is much more important to me than just a person I don't even like the word just than, a, than the person that I'm having sex with they are something in my they're a relationship in my life that is like you like a bunker buddy there's someone who's important to me in that sense sexual partners for me he is a sexual partner other sexual partners for me are intimate relationships where we're sharing parts of ourselves in a very spiritual sense. So it is somebody who I deeply respect, deeply admire, am learning from, growing from in relation to that person. And I'm learning more about myself as I'm exposing more of myself to them. And while that happens with my partner, he's not primary over them in the same way it's just more not it's just not someone who is going to be the person I'm going to have take me to the emergency room because those things for me are really that's different I don't know if that I, I know that that doesn't necessarily make sense to everyone but one's not more one sex sexual relationship isn't more important than the other the sexual relationships are equal in my mind It just means how that person deals with my non-sex life that I think changes things. And what I think is still a product of nuclear families and, and patriarchy is the term my primary because no one is more important. But I wouldn't also want to convince if somebody wanted more of my life and I didn't feel comfortable, like then that would be something we'd have to negotiate. And right now I probably would say no. Maybe that's unfair.
0: But I think we would do the same thing with friends. Exactly. And I think that's sort of where my ethic comes into this is like, would you do this with friends? And there's certainly people in my life where it's like, you know, you've got your like work bestie or whatever. I don't, I haven't worked in an office in forever, so I don't even know what those terms actually are. But, um, you know, you have like your work friends, but if there's somebody at work where all of a sudden they're like, always wanting to hang out with you outside of work. And you're like, this is not a match for me. You're actually somebody I want to keep in this area of my life. Is it unethical for you to say, actually, this isn't a match? Like, I want to not hang out with you every weekend. <laughs> like, you can do that. That's, that's an option you can make. And actually, earlier in the pandemic, I had to be really clear with some friends of mine that, like, they were not the place where I was getting my primary source of emotional support and it was really hard cuz it wasn't a, it they really felt like I was in that like close inner circle and I was like you're not in my close inner circle and it it sucked to say it and it was really painful as a conversation but it was also just honest like i'm getting my emotional needs met elsewhere that's why it feels like i'm i'm not hanging out with you
1: i think that that's a really important thing and i think that goes into the value of communication because if i were to be hanging out with someone and I were to be leading them along and saying like, yeah, no, I mean that I have a boyfriend and I'm not interested in a relationship, but then dropping breadcrumbs of like stay around, stick around, I think that's when it becomes not honest. There was an interesting, really great article posted on Medium yesterday about what purity culture does to men. This is going to seem tangential, but it's not. Because it talked about how men have a difficulty with understanding, it, like getting into relationships and being comfortable with this. And she pointed out in it, a guy will say, I'm, I don't want a relationship. I'm not interested in a relationship right now. And then keep making these comments about like, wow, you're incredible. What am I going to do with you? Just, uh, you're something else you're going to end up stealing my heart. I hope I don't hurt you. like, And making these comments that are like, I'm really trying hard not to fall in love with you, even though I am falling in love with you, but I'm not going to be in a relationship with you. That's not That's either lying, not being honest with yourself, and not being honest with the other person. It's not something healthy or safe to do. And I think that if you're If I'm in a relationship with someone and I am dropping things like, wow, you're so incredible, like, wish you were my boyfriend, and (laughs) bullshit lines like that, then that would be wrong. But if I'm clear and I'm saying, you know, we have really good wine and great conversations and great sex, that's our relationship, then they shouldn't expect to go to my Christmas parties.
0: Yep, clearly defined relationships, which can be really uncomfortable. And it can be uncomfortable to put those boundaries up because we're not used to doing it in any other aspect of our lives. Like that conversation that I had with actually like a friend, just a friend, um, was really uncomfortable because not we don't usually have to do that. It's usually pretty clear what someone's role in your life is. And it's usually just an automatic match. But if that's not, then the conversation there is going to be a little I think longer.
1: the only other thing I want to add to that is that if you are someone who is dating someone who's saying, I don't want a relationship or I have – a partner and this is casual or something like that, believe them. Because I think the mistake that I've made a lot, just personally, when I've been with someone who says, I just want a casual relationship, is I'm like, yeah, but do they really just want a casual relationship? <laughs> like, believe the boundary that they create, not the emotional BS that they're putting in that might make that blurry. Because the emotional, that's just not, it's not useful yes and call them and that's also important
0: i mean only if you feel confident in doing that. i typically i i'm a little, yeah <laughs> i'm an overcommunicator. that is sometimes bitchy no i mean so i've said like don't I don't act do that,
1: like you're falling in love with me because you're not or something like that yeah I think reminding people that where the boundary is and and respecting that boundary for you and respecting that boundary for them is necessary because they're probably not emotionally available. If they're doing that shit, they're not emotionally stable enough or like emotionally healthy enough to actually be the partner you need. So don't, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. All right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Did we want to talk about unicorns or do we feel? Yeah,
1: I mean, I feel like we kind of, glanced on unicorns a little bit. I mean, I think the only thing maybe we could just say is to me, I feel like as in an in a LGBTQ ally sense, I think that that communication is important when it's by women who feel like they're being objectified by straight couples and feeling like they're just their toy to play with instead of an actual human being that they are participating in. An intimate relationship with. Hmm. And so I think that that, you know, our conversation about primaries is important to note that when people are not in binary relationships, it can also get messy because it gets intersectional. It's not just about communication. It's also about privilege. And to be aware of your space of privilege in that situation, I think, is important. And then communicate, 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 communicate.
0: Yeah, sorry. I was just like having having a really hot (laughs) past experiences and I was like oh that was so beautiful no I was thinking about this time when I was I dated the male of a couple but I was about to go on a date with him and I didn't realize I was supposed to go to a costume party so I was Mm. borrowing her clothing as a costume and she first off she like opened her closet to me Mm -hmm. and was like let's find something that fits you which was just like beautiful and loving and then on top of it she was like oh you have to get your makeup done and you're not wearing makeup So she, like, did my makeup for me and, like, put rhinestones all over my face because it was, like, a Burning Man party, so rhinestones were necessary. And, like, just the ritual of having your makeup done by someone else, especially in this case as I was, like, going to go out on a date with her husband, was just, like, I don't know. I just always think back to that experience as something that was so beautiful and meaningful, Yeah. yeah. And it was, like, that's my goal. If I'm ever in a non-monogamous relationship, that that's my goal is that I can be that loving and non-jealous of, and I don't know, maybe she's feeling like some level of jealousy, but to be able to act from a place of love and compassion instead of from a place of of stinginess and and fear.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, I think that's the goal. I mean, I also want to say, I think we can, I think we keep repeating it, so I think it's good. That, like there's no right way because I've been thinking like I probably wouldn't. I'm not there and I don't know if I need to be there and that's okay. <laughs> um, But that sounds beautiful and it sounds like a beautiful moment that is really lucky. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. They were great. That this is what non-monogamy can be <laughs> in a way that love expands past what we understand it to exist in a – heteronormative nuclear family structure it's bigger than it's bigger than that all right totally
0: so thanks for joining us thanks for traversing into this topic with us especially given how challenging i think it can be for people and how triggering it can sometimes be um as always, subscribe, like, and share. You can follow us on Instagram at Feminists. You can find me, Rachel, at rachel.alba.coaching and Lori at Lori Kimmerly. If you're interested in learning more about – well, Lori, what are you offering right now? What's going on in your world?
1: I'm not offering anything right now. I am opening up the doors for one-on-one coaching uh, during the – pri- so I'm running the High Priestess Path right now. That will be launching soon. And I'm doing one-on-one coaching. It's all about feminist theology and erotic spirituality.
0: Sweet. And that's at Um, I, Rachel, am currently in the process of enrolling for my one-on-one coaching, Saver, which is basically geared toward helping you, you know, just let go of any sexual concerns you might have, um, pain with penetration, you know, opening up relationships is something I actually talk with clients about quite a bit, um, general sexual shame or guilt or other things that might be coming up. Um, if you are a woman who is pre-orgasmic, who hasn't yet experienced no an orgasm and want some assistance with that, all those sorts of things are what I help with. And within a context that talks about spirituality and where you're coming from religiously so that you can better integrate those two aspects of your life. And you can find out more information at www.sexwithspirit.com. Um, Again, we are the Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and we will see you next week for another conversation about sexuality, spirituality, and feminism.